0: hello everyone welcome to scream scene this is the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst my name's ben
1: and i'm sarah
0: thank you for listening to us today how are you doing today sarah
1: I'm doing good. It's the long weekend here in Canada for Canadian Thanksgiving, and our new co-host, Lady Paradox of Castle Scream Scene, is settling in well. Yeah,
0: she's a good cat.
1: She's a very good cat. How are you?
0: I'm doing all right. Uh, Yeah, it is um, Thanksgiving Monday in Canada, I guess, like the day off. Um, I actually don't know if Thanksgiving is actually on the, the Monday or if it's on the Sunday or what, but... It's always
1: counted to be the Monday.
0: Got it. Well, either way, enjoying the day off, which has mostly involved the end of like a three-day long process of doing research about today's movie.
1: Uh, Well, what are we watching?
0: Well, today, Sarah, we've got a very big deal movie, continuing the 1960 string of very big deal movies. It's La Masquera del Demonio, a.k.a. The Mask of Satan, a.k.a. Black Sunday.
1: I believe a direct translation would be Mask of the Demon?
0: Yes, but that's not one of its English language titles.
1: Fair enough, fair enough.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll obviously explain a lot more about that later, of course. But as the first title I mentioned gives away, this is an Italian horror film, and it is the first
1: technically...
0: That we're seeing from <laughs> director Mario Bava.
1: The first one he's allowed to say, I directed this. Yes,
0: the first one he has a full directing credit on, as opposed to uncredited, finishing other people's movies kind of deal. Horror film in Italy has been kind of like a slow burn process. Uh, there's only been two examples in the post-Mussolini era thus far. E Piri from 1957... Uh, which ranks at number 97 on the list currently. Uh, we looked at that movie in episode 207.
1: Just under 100 episodes yeah. ago. Yeah.
0: 1957. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one is Kaltiki, Il Monstro Immortale, from 1959, ranked at number 49 currently.
1: Yeah, that movie's pretty good.
0: From episode 279. Both of these films were directed by Riccardo Freda with cinematography and special effects by Mario Bava, who in both cases also completed directing the pictures when Freda lost interest in finishing the job and just sort of left it to Bava to finish.
1: Freda doesn't sound like the best of bosses.
0: (laughs) Mario Bava was born in 1914 in Italy. Uh, He was the son of sculptor-turned-cinematographer Eugenio Bava, and originally Mario wanted to be a painter, Um, but he turned to the film industry for work when he found that he couldn't make a living as a painter. Beginning in 1937, he worked as a camera assistant, uh, gradually working his way up to his first job as a cinematographer in 1943. Bava regularly worked with top directors and stars, and by the 1950s, he was considered to be one of the best cinematographers working in Italy. In addition to the aforementioned horror pictures, um, he also shot massive international hits like 1958's Hercules, starring Steve Reeves, and its 1959 sequel, Hercules Unchained. Now, those two films had been produced by Galatea Films, um, who had also produced Kaltiki. And these were pictures that did very well in dubbed forms in the United States, leading Galatea President Lionello Santi to conclude that pictures explicitly intended for foreign markets could be profitable, even if they did poorly domestically. Mm -hmm. So... Based on his work on these earlier films, uh, as well as his work on the Jacques Tourneur directed Swords and Sandals film, The Giant of Marathon, uh, Mario Bava was recommended for his first, like, full on for real Z's directorial debut by producer Massimo Derita. And Santi agreed and also approved Derita's request for the film's budget. Uh, to be much higher than many other Galatea productions, um, and the shooting schedule to be much longer. Uh, most oh, nice. Italian films of this period shot for like three to four weeks, um, and this production had a shooting schedule of six to seven weeks.
1: I mean, even three to four weeks seems generous, Yeah, <laughs> given like what we've been seeing in the States.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. The approved budget for the picture was approximately fifty-five thousand dollars, though the film ultimately went over budget to the tune of a hundred thousand dollars.
1: That's like double. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It'll I guess make... if you like doubled the shooting time as well.
0: Well, but it was fifty-five thousand dollars at six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the reason it went over budget will become clear. Okay. So once he was chosen for the project, um, they basically told Bava, like, do what you want. Like, what do you think would be cool, basically? Um, And Bava decided the picture should be a horror movie, kind of with the explicit goal of copying the success of Hammer's Dracula. Mm, Hmm. With the creative freedom to base the film on a story of his choosing, Bava chose V by Nikolai Gogol. Uh, A story he really enjoyed. It was like his favorite horror story. Um, He frequently read it to his children at bedtime.
1: It is an interesting thing to read to your children. Okay. Now, Ben, you and maybe the folks at home might be going like, why would an Italian person be like, oh, yeah, that Russian writer. Mm -hmm. And Nikolai Gogol is kind of like the best example for why that would happen. Let me tell you a little bit about this author. Sure.
0: Yeah, I don't know anything about him.
1: Well, he's a big deal. He influenced a lot of the Russian writers that you don't like. Oh, great. But he himself is cool. (laughs) I think you would like his stuff. Okay. He was born in 1809 in the area that we would now call Ukraine to lower gentry. Nikolai Gogol began writing while in university, and he fell in love with the craft And upon graduation, decided, I'm going to head to St. Petersburg, the big city, and hit it big with these literary ambitions that are also very vague and with no real plan about how to achieve these literary ambitions. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know what? I know what will get my good start. Uh, I will self-publish a collection of romantic poems romantic as in like the literary movement and i'll hit it big everyone will be like oh yeah Gogol, he's the guy uh it flopped phenomenally Mm. to the point where he went around and bought all of the remaining copies and burned them oh wow and swore that he would never write poetry again he would stick to prose and stage plays he published his first short story collection in 1831 titled Evenings on a Farm Near Dekonka, and published the second volume the following year. Hmm. And here's, I think, a good point to kind of talk a little bit about what his genre is. Okay. Because when you hear romantic stuff, you think, oh, the sublime as, like, coming from nature and is truly terrifying and overwhelming and beautiful, and that sense of, like, rural pastimes. And you definitely get that in... Gogol's work, especially this early short story collections, but his contemporaries in Russia tended to be like, oh, he's writing about rural life? He's a naturalist. Mm. Which is really hilarious. Naturalism is a very different avenue than romanticism.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So people like to call it like the great paradox of Gogol. Oh,
0: okay. Which I
1: thought was funny because we have a in paradox. Yeah. Included in his literary circle were um, the romantic Alexander Pushkin, as well as Russian historians and critics, who did try to help him get work beyond just writing, even if he wasn't necessarily qualified. I see. He developed a passion for Ukrainian history, and he was like, ah, Kiev University, let me come teach Ukrainian history. Pushkin was behind him, uh, a bureaucrat was behind him, and someone on the university hiring board was like, but this guy has no credentials to teach history. No, he's not getting this position. He tried again at St. Petersburg University for professor of medieval history, and he did get it. This would be in 1834. Um, He missed half the lectures, (laughs) and the lectures he did provide were generalizations from someone who is clearly not an expert
0: right sure yeah uh
1: he resigned in 1835
0: just someone like rambling to you about like half remembered like articles that they read and like
1: absolutely you know like (laughs) well it strikes me as someone who's like really passionate about a subject yeah and then moves on he's like but i know enough about this i can definitely teach it no you can't yeah yeah (laughs) totally After resigning from St. Petersburg University, his output increased dramatically with two different short story collections, including the collection Mirgorod, in which the story V was published, um, which is the basis of Black Sunday. Before I go into this short story, let me continue telling you about Gogol. He didn't go full force into a literary career until 1836 with some comedic and satirical plays um, like The Government Inspector. Writing satire in the time of Imperial Russia, not always the best thing to do. Hmm. And this play caught the eye of Tsar Nicholas I, who loved it, thought it was hilarious (laughs) and became a frequent patron from then onward. With this patronage, Nikolai Gogol traveled Europe, including Switzerland, Germany, and an extensive stay in Italy. Mm. While in Italy, he became inspired by many Italian works from literature to opera to art, um, particularly by Dante's Inferno. And he had a goal to create his own version of Dante's Inferno, but from like a Russian perspective. He published the first volume, he titled it Dead Souls, Um, but censors changed the title to The Adventures of Chichikov, which was published in 1842. A little less evocative. A little less evocative. That same year, 1842 saw the publication of his most famous and influential short story called The Overcoat.
0: Oh, I think I know The Overcoat.
1: Yeah, I thought you would. Between this story and Gogol's other works, he solidified himself as an influential Russian writer. The Overcoat in particular uh, was influential to Dostoevsky, Kafka, Nabokov, and even people not in Russia, but people worldwide. Um, And I'll bring up Flannery O'Connor as uh, a name to bring up here because she is very notable for the Southern Gothic. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned that misclassification of Gogol's style as naturalistic rather than romantic, but even he doesn't quite fit into the romantic movement, Hmm. Um, and that's because he tends to use grotesque instead of sublime. Sure. Um, But you know,
0: that's what happens when you're part of the Russian literary scene.
1: (laughs) So that's kind of why he has quite a few horror novellas and short stories. Um, But honestly, it seems like satire was his bigger genre. Hmm. And this could be satirical dramatically or comedically. Uh, The overcoat in particular is satirical, but it starts off comedic and then turns dramatic. Mm -hmm. As a side note, uh, I think it's also worthwhile to point out that um, a lot of Gogol's contemporaries thought he uh, was a bit too much of a supporter of the status quo. Hmm. He. I mean, would, I
0: guess that's a, a an easy critique to get when, like, the czar is one of your patrons.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, he would be classified as like a slavophile. Okay. In the context of Gogol, um, it's the idea of like that would turn to a rural, natural life, and you know, the ideal being in the peasant kind of life, mm-hmm. but specifically the Orthodox Church being like still number one in authority on the government still being number one in authority. So very much a, a supporter of the status quo. Whereas, you know, he's writing in the time of like people being into Marx and stuff. Right.
0: Well, also like there was a trend in like high class Russian society. And you see this in like war and peace, for instance, that like if you wanted to be trendy and cool, you were Francophile right? Like high-class Russian nobles would learn French and speak in French. And there was this kind of like, which creates almost this sense of like looking down at Mm -hmm. your own culture and thinking like, no, we have to emulate like Western Europe. They're so much cooler than us, right?
1: Yeah. So you can kind of see with Gogol, he's not in that same crowd. Yeah. Now he never finished his version of Dante's Inferno. Um, He traveled around Europe. He Made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem because he was uh, an Orthodox Christian. And as he was working on volume two, because it was only going to be two volumes, he became intensely paranoid about damnation mm. and kind of started to see sins in anything he was doing. So he became excessively ascetic. So, uh, cutting out all and any indulgences like food. Yeah. He had a really bad bout of depression, um, which led to him burning most of his manuscripts, including the majority of uh, this second volume, which afterwards he was like, it was a trick of the devil. I must like cut out even more indulgences. Um, and nine days later, he passed away from essentially starving himself. And this would have been in March 1852. He was 42 years old.
0: Yeah, that sucks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But he was celebrated in his time and afterwards, particularly with the influence that he did have. The short story V, from the collection Myrgorod, uh was pretty early in his literary career. After reading about V, I don't think that there's any actual relation to this movie beyond... Let's claim this movie is similar to this literary text to claim some authority or prestige... Um, that's my guess, honestly, let me tell you about what this is. So the collection itself, Mirgorod, that is literally like the name of a city called city of peace, um, for both like the Russian and the Ukrainian names. And overall, the whole short story collection is about the idolization of rural life and peasant life. So keep that in mind as I go into this story, when the short story It's really more of a novella in this collection. But in any case, there's an author's note when you begin um, saying that the character of V is from folklore. Um, However, that doesn't really add up when scholars have looked into it. The V in the story is a title given to the leader of the gnomes or little Russians, as they can sometimes be called. But there are no ties to this description of a gnome and this kind of gnome um in ukrainian or slavic folklore
0: that's interesting like i totally bought into the idea that it was like a traditional folkloric figure a traditional folkloric story so that's interesting to figure out to find out that it was like made up basically
1: yeah and to emphasize what i mean here gnomes, exi- well, <laughs> gnomes and yeah. exist well gnomes in folklore exist yeah uh but not in the way that he's describing them here mm. um particularly the v character Um, has eyelids that are super, super long and he needs help lifting them up. And that symbolism of eyes and eyelids are tied to other figures in like Russian folklore in particular, um, including in the description of someone named Cassian the Unmerciful and in the description of a husband to a witch, which is relevant because the other main character in this movie is a witch. The whole story itself has many similarities to other folktales, and particularly, particularly the role of the witch in the story kind of is tied to other folktales, so maybe that's kind of where he was going. But most literary critics look at V as more of a literary device or metaphor rather than a folktale figure. So the story, we follow three poor students traveling Ukraine, and they are struggling to find some lodging. They come across a farm, and the old woman there agrees to house them, um, but in three separate barns. That night, one of the students, named Koma, who is a philosopher who kind of indulges a little bit too much in merrymaking, is awoken by this old woman coming to him, and she begins to ride him like a horse, kind of like a piggyback style.
0: Okay, so that wasn't a metaphor.
1: Well, um, he doesn't literally tra- change into a horse, but the way that it is described as him like running across fields, running across the sea, it's clear that she is a witch and is treating him as if a horse. Right,
0: right. But you didn't mean that like she and he were having some like nighttime fun,
1: you know, when you said that she was riding him as a horse, which is where no. I thought that was going no. initially. They're playing horsey. Yeah. Eventually, he manages to throw the witch off and then he takes a log and beats her nearly to death and the old woman transforms into a beautiful young woman and he leaves her, you know, to die in the wilderness as he tries to make his way back to his friends. On his way, he hears the rumor that a local chief had a daughter come home um, after going missing for a long time and this daughter has been badly beaten and that her last wish is for Koma to come be by her bedside as she dies um he doesn't want to go but he's forced to the chieftain's guards come and get him and they bring him to the chief but the daughter has already died so there's no way to get an explanation for why she knew who Koma was but Koma swears i'll help find the killer and bring him to justice because you're offering a reward upon seeing the dead daughter Turns out it was the witch. Who would have thought? Koma is forced to hold vigil over her dead body for the next three nights. The first night, the girl awakens. She's undead, um, and he uses a salt circle to protect himself from her coming to get him and kill him. Um, as she is coming towards him, she turns blue. The second night, he recites a prayer to become invisible and... And so the woman, you know, is trying to claw at empty space and uses bats and demons to fly about her to try to find him. But there's no luck. All of this is clearly taking a toll on Koma. Like his hair turns gray. He's like aging rapidly because of all this. Um, He does try to escape, but to no avail. And then the third night, the witch still cannot see Koma. So she calls on the V, who can see everything. V is squat, hairy. Dirty, it's kind of implied that he like digs through dirt kind of like a mole, um and he has very, very long eyelids like down to his knees, uh, and he needs help raising them, and once they're raised, he can see anything that's invisible. He sees coma, the demon's attack, coma dies. That's the story mm-hmm. from what I briefly read of a synopsis of Black Sunday. I don't see how any of that relates to it, but I am excited to watch the movie, regardless
0: <laughs> so. Bava's initial four-page story outline for this movie was called Ilvi, uh, and it transposed Gogol's story to the present day. Okay. It starts with uh, an, a married couple who come to an abandoned church where they meet an old man, and this old man tells them the story of a centurion's daughter who would become a witch at night in order to harass... A philosopher mm. every night. Okay. Uh, until finally, the philosopher kills her, and then from beyond the grave, uh, she summons the V to scare the philosopher to death. And then in the present day, it is revealed that the married couple are reincarnations of the witch and the philosopher, as she is destined to like haunt him forever. That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, Santi. The head of Galatea Films was not happy with this treatment. Oh. Uh, he did not like this. And so he hired Ennio de Concini, uh, who was the writer of Hercules and Hercules Unchained, uh, and was Galatea's top screenwriter, to turn this outline into a workable screenplay. Many of the final film's themes uh, come from Concini and are typical of his work. Uh, things like The Corruption of a Holy Place. The idea of like sovereignty and authority falling into decay um, and the sort of trope of like a female character who is both good and evil or like one actress playing two characters, one who's good and one who's evil. But Concini was very good at expressing movies as pitches to executives in the room. And not so good at actually writing things down in a screenplay. No! <laughs> so, Marcello Cochia, uh, who had co-written The Day the Sky Exploded, the first Italian sci-fi film, which Bava had also worked on, was brought in to actually write the script. Ultimately, the film's credits would also cite the editor, Mario Serendri, as a co-writer as well. So critical was his role in shaping the picture's narrative into what it would be in the end.
1: So this is an adaptation of V three or four times removed. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. We've gone through a few different writers um, and they were like, when they were filming, they were handing the actors' script pages on the day. Oh, that's always a
1: good sign. Yeah,
0: no one ever actually, no one in the cast ever actually saw like a complete front-to-back script. Um, By the end of the process, uh, Bava would remark, quote, such was the genius of the screenwriters, including myself, that absolutely nothing remained of Gogol's tale by the end. (laughs) Now, that's not strictly true, but what does remain of V is kind of superficial. Um... Three of the characters have the same names as characters in V. Um, The name of the location is Mirgarad. There's a ruined chapel, just like in the story. And the lead character, the main focal character of this story, is a witch who transforms into a beautiful young woman. Okay. So that's kind of what remains from V. The crucial thing from V that is not in this movie is the V. Yes. Yeah, not present in this film. Now, Santi... It's not
1: even in the title. <laughs>
0: <laughs> During the sort of fine-tuning of the script, as it were, uh, the film was retitled La Maschera del Demonio, you know, The Mask of the Demon. And this was actually to play off the Italian titles of House of Wax and Curse of Frankenstein. Sure. Uh, the Italian title of House of Wax was La Maschera di Cera, which means Mask of Wax, and the Italian title of Curse of Frankenstein was La Maschera di Frankenstein, which means...
1: The Mask of Frankenstein. Yeah. Frankenstein's Mask.
0: Yeah. When the script was submitted to the censor board for review, once it was finally, quote, finished, unquote, um, the report back commented that the story was so chock-full of horror elements that it made Hammer's Dracula look like a kid's movie.
1: Wonderful.
0: Now, Santi wanted the film to be shot in color so that it would stand next to the Hammer horror films of the time and evoke that style. Uh, But Bava insisted on black and white, partially for aesthetic reasons. He wanted that gothic horror black and white look. And also partially because he wanted to try and pull off the Jekyll Hyde makeup effect. Oh, sure. When having the witch transform from old to young. Okay. Uh, He drew extensive storyboards for the picture. And took the position of cinematographer as well as director.
1: That's a lot of work. Yeah. That's a lot of work, my dude. There's a reason those are two separate jobs. Those are both very challenging jobs.
0: I think it's because like his job up till now had been cinematographer and the directing he had done was like finishing movies that other directors had abandoned while he was still the cinematographer of those movies originally
1: so this is just status quo for him
0: this is yeah this is probably what felt natural to him was to do both a lot of people on set recall him being like really humble and kind of shy and a genius who like if you complimented him would be like no no what are you talking about no and um very like one-on-one and very like quiet Now, it was decided that the picture should have a British cast in order to appeal to the international audience, in order to make it seem like it was a hammer horror film, basically. Yeah. Um, So for the film's female lead, uh, playing the dual role of both the good girl and the bad girl, I guess you could say, uh, Bava cast 22-year-old actress Barbara Steele after seeing photos of her in Life magazine and deciding she had the perfect face to be in the movie. All right. Now, Barbara Steele was born in England in 1937. She'd appeared in a number of British comedies from the Rank Organization starting in 1958, but always in, like, supporting roles, smaller parts. Her Rank contract was bought by 20th Century Fox, and she came to the United States to star in an Elvis Presley movie. Uh, But she got along poorly with the director who found her British accent too pronounced and fired her, uh, though Steele claimed that she quit. Stuck in the United States, the 1960 Screen Actors Guild strike uh, left her without work. That was um, the last time before this year that the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild of America were on strike at the same time. Okay. Uh, So unable to work, she agreed to come to Italy to shoot La Maschera del Demonio despite the fact that she hated the horror genre.
1: She's about to love it. Maybe. Maybe?
0: So English actor John Richardson, uh, who was born in 1934, was cast as Steele's love interest, basically because he and Steele were represented by the same agent. His career had basically followed the same path as hers, a bunch of like minor roles in British comedies, then over to the United States, then screwed over by the actors, guild strike and now over to Italy. Um, He actually never wanted to be an actor. um, But after his military service in the Korean War, he needed to find work and his good looks won him all these offers from like local theatrical companies being like no no no, you have to be in our play you you're too (laughs) handsome and that sort of snowballed into like a film acting career now this role would land him several follow-up italian genre pictures before returning to britain to star in several adventure films for hammer notably she in 1965 opposite ursula andrus and one million years bc in 1966 opposite raquel welch And he passed away from COVID at age 86 in 2021. Mm. The rest of the cast was filled in with Italian performers, including Ivo Gassoni and Arturo Domenici, who had worked with Bava on previous movies. The picture shot, uh, as I mentioned, for seven weeks in the spring of 1960, mostly at the studio with some interior shots being done at a historic castle because the picture went into production without a finished script bava had to improvise as he went making planning difficult and leading to cost overruns Ah, because when you can't make a shot list because you don't know what you're shooting until the day you're shooting it and you're just kind of having to make things up as you go you can't be as efficient right
1: this also makes it more clear as to why the editor is listed as a writer, because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're filming a lot of things and the editor's just like, "Welp."
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, story elements like whether the villains were witches, Satanists or vampires were constantly shifting throughout <laughs> filming. Um, the actors were fitted with vampire fangs, which actress Barbara Steele hated so much that Bava discarded them early in filming, asking editor Serendre to cut around them for the finished sequences that had already used them rather than reshoot those scenes. Wow. Though the script was written in Italian, it was translated to English uh, for the cast members and was basically like, the, the, their lines were recited in English during filming mm-hmm. um, with the exception of a couple of the cast members who did their dialogue in italian uh if you don't know this audience um it was really standard in italian filmmaking at this time to just shoot without sound uh entirely and if you had an international cast like this the cast members would just speak dialogue in whatever their native language was on set because everything was going to be dubbed anyway whether it was in italian or in english So you can kind of see this if like you're a fan of like the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns of this period where Clint Eastwood and
1: Lee Van Cleef.
0: Yeah. And
1: Eli Wallach.
0: Thank you. Are all like dubbing themselves and it matches their lips because they were speaking English on set. But then you have other English actors dubbing the smaller characters and it doesn't match their lips because they were speaking Italian on set. Right. Barbara Steele. Um consistently caused problems on set uh, stemming partially from her unhappiness at being involved in the production to begin with and partially from her inability to understand italian she hated her fangs she hated her wig she hated uh scenes where she had to play piano and she absolutely hated scenes where her dress was to be ripped to expose her breasts So for that, she insisted on the film using a double until she decided she didn't like the double and insisted on doing it herself anyway. Embarrassed to be there, Steele started drinking
1: throughout production
0: uh, and she was kind of drunk all throughout shooting. And so that coupled with like misunderstandings with the Italian interpreters frequently caused her to arrive late or not at all. A misunderstanding about her nude scene caused her to believe that Bava had a film stock that could see through her clothes. What? She didn't know how film works. A lot of people don't.
1: (laughs) Ask. (laughs) My goodness. Okay, sorry.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, this was an era when, like, they sold, like, X-ray glasses to kids in in, um, comic book magazines, right?
1: So... People should believe the ads in comic books. Okay. She was,
0: she was young. She was foolish. Um, <laughs> Bava thought that she was afraid of him. She actually kind of thought Bava was the nicest person on the set, but towards the end of the shoot, she had developed a nervous laugh from the stress that caused the Italian crew to kind of judge her as like neurotic. Um, so there was a lot of tension there later on in life. Steele's recollections about making the film would be very faulty. Like, she would tell a lot of stories that could be easily proven to be untrue. Um, but, you know, she was also drunk the whole time and super stressed out. And that does things to your memory. Um, things like she remembered the movie shooting in December in like freezing winter conditions and being sick the whole time. But the movie shot in like March through May. She also recalled that Bava had all the sets and costumes and makeup done in black and white, but production stills from the film reveal this not to be the case. It would be more accurate to say that Bava designed the film's sets and costumes to look good in black and white, but they weren't
1: like actually, yeah.
0: Fellow Englishman uh, John Richardson also found the shoot very stressful and also kind of developed this nervous laughter tick and basically stuck close to steel um to kind of comfort each other in and amongst the italian cast with bava directing it was camera operator ubaldo terzano who would do many of the like more nitty-gritty duties of a director of photography um so Bava, you know, was ostensibly the film cinematographer. He storyboarded the film. He designed the lighting. He chose lenses. But on the day, it would be Terzano actually lighting the sets and choosing which takes to print um, and obviously operating the camera. For his official directorial debut, Bava enjoyed playing with some new tools that he had not gotten to use before, like a dolly, um, as well as a special camera rig that enabled a 180-degree turn built by Bava's father, Eugenio, for the shoot. Eugenio Bava also helped his son with creating many of the film's special effects, including making an articulated fake head out of wax that could be, like, burned to show someone being like burned alive Um, foam latex masks that could be kind of have the hollow parts of them filled with like blood and maggots and things to make people's like face, like eyes look like they were like being eaten out and you know, a lot of other creations uh, to enable a level of on-camera gore hitherto unknown.
1: We'll be the judge of that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, other effects on the film were achieved through mats, like a lot of matte painting use um, a lot of double exposure tricks for like both of Steele's characters to be on screen at the same time. Um, there's like a few shots that are done using the like um that mirror method uh, that I'll never understand. And just, you know, other kind of visual tricks like that, uh, including the aforementioned Jekyll Hyde makeup effect for the de-aging scenes and uh, some miniatures work for explosions. And all of these special effects shoots were done in the seventh week of shooting. So They okay. kind of shot all the regular stuff for the first six weeks. And then the last week they did all the special effects work. Then the picture moved into post-production, uh, where editor Mario Serendre worked to sculpt the broken story, and contradictory details into a working narrative. However, in reworking the material to remove certain plot lines um, and reordering certain scenes to obscure that those plot lines had ever existed in the first place, um, there are still a lot of like inconsistencies in structure and characterization in the film. There's plot holes. Um, A lot of these result from shifts over which of her dual roles steel is meant to be portraying in a certain scene. Um, the film used to have a plot line where her good character would go under disguise as her evil character to pretend to be her evil character. And the film Dropped that plot line, but used some of the scenes where she's her good character pretending to be her evil character as scenes where in the finished narrative, she actually is her evil character, which makes some of the characterization for her evil character like a little inconsistent. You know, this is what you get. Okay. The score for the picture is by jazz musician Roberto Nicolosi, who crafted a very um, spare score uh, in a very romantic Mode, mostly inspired by the music for Horror of Dracula. And it really leaves a lot of the movie to the sound designer for, like, using sound effects to fill up the space. Um, there are, like, key dramatic scenes that don't use any music at all. Um, but there is a standout piece of music in his score called Katia's Theme, which is frequently praised and, like, is still kind of a popular piece of music in film scores. As the picture was intended from the beginning for international markets, an English language soundtrack was created at the same time as the Italian soundtrack. Um, This English language version was created in Rome and was called the mask of Satan with like English credits saying that, right? So for some of the characters, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the English dub fits their lip movements. And for some of the characters, the Italian does, there is no real true, like, this is the language for the movie. Yeah. It was, it was kind of equally in Italian and English. Now, the Italian version, La Maschera del Demonio, was passed without cuts by the Board of Censors and released in Italy on August 11th, 1960. It grossed 139 million lira domestically. Damn. Which made it a popular hit. However, that amount... Comes out to something like $70,000 US.
1: Oh, so short of what they actually spent. Spent,
0: yeah. If the movie had stayed on budget, it would have been profitable. But because of the cost overruns, it didn't actually make its money back. Although it was like compared to other films in the theater, like a big success. It was hugely popular. But then again, the movie was always intended to make its money internationally anyway. The Italian release made Barbara Steele an instant star in Italy, and it had an immediate influence on Italian cinema, not just with, like, imitators, but also with, like, being referenced in other movies in Italy. Like, there's a character in an Italian comedy that came out a little while later who's, like, obsessed with this movie and things like that. Okay. Uh, The Italian release also includes a scene not present in any other version Uh, which is included for home video only on the Italian release DVDs. Um, This is a scene that Serendre had actually cut from the picture, but it was reinserted at some point without Bava or Serendre's knowledge into the Italian version, Um, and it was not reinserted at the correct point, so it just kind of comes out of nowhere, and yeah... So the Italian version of the film runs about 87 minutes long. This scene is not present in the Mask of Satan English dub version, which runs about 86 minutes long and represents Bava's, like, director's cut, I guess you could say. Um, And later issueings of the Italian language version would follow the editing of Mask of Satan, just with the Italian language. Okay. The Mask of Satan version, uh, you know, was meant for... Export to English language countries. Um, But this version was rejected by the British Board of Film Censors. Like, no, if you just cut this out, like, no, it was just straight up, we're not giving this thing a certificate. Um, And so it was therefore banned in the UK, cutting off a major international market. Now, it would eventually be released in the United Kingdom with seven minutes cut out of it as Revenge of the Vampire in 1968. The Mask of Satan version would also not see release in America. Not exactly, anyway. Samuel Arkoff and James Nicholson of American International Pictures were invited to Rome to view the picture with Mario Bava. Arkoff found it to be the work of a first-class horror director, congratulated Bava, and AIP purchased the U.S. rights for $100,000, thus covering the film's production budget. Nice. However... Back in the U.S. of A., uh, Arkov decided that the English dubbing in The Mask of Satan was technically unacceptable and hired Tetra Studios in New York City to totally redub the picture. Now, today, uh, Tetra is well-respected by genre film fans of this period uh, for producing the excellent dubs for AIP's 1960s Godzilla film releases as well as the dubs for the original Speed Racer and Ultraman TV shows. In redubbing the picture, some character names were changed to be easier for Americans, like, uh, I think, Coma Becomes Thomas, for instance. Um, And scenes of excessive violence, blasphemy, sexuality, romantic melodrama, incest, and necrophilia were removed. All in all, the...
1: Some of those things on that list are of different
0: weight. Sure. Um, So all in all, the picture was cut down to 83 minutes um, with an eye on not just like American audience sensibilities and, you know, keeping to code and things like that, but also because... Bava's film was targeted at an adult audience, and AIP's audience was teens. Sure. So, for instance, this is why, like, the romantic melodrama scenes were removed. It was like, no, 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 we gotta get to the, you know, the good stuff faster. Gotta get to
1: the fireworks factory. Right.
0: Additionally, Arkov found Nicolosi's score too Italian and decided the picture should be rescored with new music for American audiences. So he brought in Les Baxter to record the picture. Uh, Baxter, of course, wrote the music for The Black Sheep. Voodoo Island, Pharaoh's Curse, Macabre, and Follow the House of Usher. Baxter's score was bombastic, unsubtle, highly cued, and just basically everything Nicolosi's was not. However, Baxter did incorporate Katya's theme throughout his version of the score. A.I.P. wanted to change the title of the movie. Uh, I guess they were worried about the title Mask of Satan. Uh, So new titles suggested included Witchcraft and The Curse before finally A.I.P. rechristened the picture Black Sunday. Okay. Black Sunday premiered on February 3rd, 1961 in the United States as the A picture on a double feature with Roger Corman's horror comedy Little Shop of Horrors. AIP's instincts about what American audiences wanted must have been correct because Black Sunday was a huge hit for them. Uh, It was their highest grossing film thus far that they had bought from like a foreign market. Um, It had a record-breaking first week and a total domestic gross of $706,000, making it a pretty huge hit for AIP.
1: Definitely. But... How can you tell that half of that isn't coming from people going to see Little Shop of Horrors?
0: <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is like the movie's a big hit. So AIP can go. Yeah, yeah. yeah, All of our changes were justified. But you don't actually know that if like you don't release the Italian version in America and see how it does. Right. Yeah. But anyways. Need some A-B testing. Right. Uh, huge hit, though. Yes. Big, big deal hit. Italian critics at the time uh, hated La Maschera del Demonio, with only the cinematography winning consistent praise across the board. Meanwhile, the French release, Le Masque du de Demon, uh, was praised by French critics for its cinematography, as well as the f- film's um, poetic story. And Bava was declared by *Cahiers du Cinéma as an auteur, uh, with the, quote, soul of a painter.
1: I mean, yeah, he wanted he, to be a painter.
0: Yeah. The U.S. Black Sunday release won praise for its cinematography, and while it was considered to be gruesome and excessive in its violence, critics agreed that this made it a spectacularly effective horror film.
1: Oh, good. They're not like, it's good despite the horror. It's like,
0: I don't know, there's like a couple of critics who had comments that were basically like, I found this film to be completely disgusting. There was no reason they needed to go so far on the violence, but I can't say that it's not effective, right?
1: (laughs) This movie is disgusting. Go see it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When the Revenge of the Vampire version was finally released in the UK, everything about it was praised except the dubbing. Eventually, the Black Sunday version was released in the UK on home video in 1986, while the uncut Mask of Satan version became available in 1992. In the U.S., the Black Sunday version was released on Laserdisc in 1991, and Image Entertainment would release the Black Sunday version on VHS and the Mask of Satan version on DVD in 1999. The Image DVD was then basically reissued by Anchor Bay in a Mario Bava box set in 2007. In 2002, a new Italian version of the film was created by Bava's colleague, Alfredo Leone, to prevent the picture from falling into the public domain. It Mm. made a number of changes to, like, make it just unique enough, basically. Um, So the narration was re-recorded and some new narration added. The title cards in the opening credits were redone in red over the black and white film. And um, they used parts of Les Baxter's US score to score scenes that Nicolosi's score left silent while using the Mm. Nicolosi score for the scenes that he originally did score.
1: That would be a a little bit of a different viewing experience because Mm -hmm. you're going from two very different genre styles. Mm -hmm. That's really, I'm very curious what that would be be like
0: this version also featured the extra scene from the original italian prints, but restored to its proper place in the story sequence instead of the rather incongruous spot that it was in initially um, this is the version of la maschera del demonio that is now available on dvd in italy it's also the version that gets shown on tcm In 2012, Kino Lorber released the Mask of Satan version on Blu-ray, this time with the original Italian audio as an option as well with the um, original English dubbing from Rome. So you could get both languages um, in like Bava's cut, but like visually it's the Mask of Satan version, but they're basically identical other than the credits. In 2015, Kino Lorber released the AIP black sunday version as a separate blu-ray so you, you gotta <laughs> buy both i guess so for this reason in my opinion the best home video release comes from arrow which in 2013 put out a blu-ray containing the italian english and american versions of the movie all in one release as well as Ivan e puri included as a bonus feature oh sweet It is region B locked, unfortunately. Oh. Uh, So North American viewers will need to either buy both Kino Blu-rays or a region-free Blu-ray player.
1: I mean, a region-free Blu-ray player is just an investment for the future.
0: Really, it is. Yeah. (laughs) Today, Black Sunday is often considered Bava's best film, even though it's technically his first one. Um, But it's also considered one of the best Italian horror films period, as well as one of the best gothic horror movies, period. Uh, Atmospheric visuals, high sexuality, and extensive gore are elements in this movie that proved to be highly influential going forward. The success of Black Sunday turned Barbara Steele into a scream queen, which she hated. Yeah. Uh, She felt that basically any pretty girl could play these roles.
1: Girl, no. Like... I want to say you're not giving yourself enough credit, but she also was drunk every day.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, But no, not everyone can be a scream queen.
0: It did, however, put her in a place where she could accept a role in Fellini's Eight and a Half. Good. Which she appeared in because she was in Rome making these horror movies.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: Now, Black Sunday pushed boundaries uh, on violence in film, which would escalate in Italian horror films from this point forward and many filmmakers today consider Black Sunday a key influence on their style notably Tim Burton cites Black Sunday as one of the biggest influences on his own work and he very like explicitly homages it in Sleepy Hollow and Francis Ford Coppola homages Black Sunday several times in his production of Bram Stoker's Dracula
1: that makes total
0: sense Later on, Bava would be offered the opportunity to remake Black Sunday in color, which he rejected. In 1989, his son, Lamberto Bava, made a new version of La Maschera del Demonio. Not a direct remake, but actually a film based on his father's original story concept Uh, of a modernized retelling of V. Okay. That's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, good for him.
0: (laughs) Uh, If you're looking to stream Black Sunday, um, other than like bad YouTube uploads, um, the version that's available to stream is the Mask of Satan version. It's available on Canopy and Plex. Um, So yeah, like just a note, if you are looking at it on Canopy, it says it's the original Italian version of the movie, which is true, except it's not the Italian language version. It's the English language version Mask of Satan version that was made in Italy.
1: English dub, Italian cut. Yes. What are we watching?
0: Well, I kind of wanted to ask what you wanted to do. Um, We won't be watching Black Sunday or Revenge of the Vampire, even though the AIP Black Sunday is the like, kind of most iconic version in north america obviously we want to see the uncut italian version with all the sex and violence and incest and so on and so forth oh
1: yeah let me see all that um Um, so your question is whether we watch it in english or italian
0: right so the english dub is very much like you know kind of what baba almost like intended english is what the cast was speaking on set um the italian dub because I guess they're both technically dubs is what was, you know, originally shown in Italy. Um, So I kind of lean towards watching the mask of Satan um, just because that's what English, the English is what was used on set, but I kind of wanted to know what your thought was.
1: Because his original intent was the English dub because of the international audience. Let's do that.
0: Cool. That's what I was thinking too. All right.
1: Well, folks, hopefully you can find one of these copies Uh, And watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss uh, The Mask of Satan, I guess, from 1960, directed by Mario Bava. See
0: you on the other side, everybody.
1: welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mask of Satan, also sort of known as Black Sunday from 1960, directed by Mario Bava. Ben, you told me that this is like your second time seeing this?
0: Basically, I saw the Black Sunday version on VHS.
1: Ah, so it's been a while. It's
0: been a while. Um, So even just seeing it in like, blu-ray quality you know was like a big change nevertheless seeing the original italian cut um in the mask of satan version yeah so uh you know basically a new experience
1: and how was it good good this is good shit this is great i love this movie it's dope as hell if it's gothic i'm gonna say it's dope as hell Mm -hmm. and this movie is so gothic it's so good uh i really enjoyed it i really liked the music especially i would not change the music i'm very upset they changed the music this music is perfect <laughs> um uh i was like okay my notes can't just be gushing mm-hmm. so i do have good notes mm-hmm. but we'll get to that in the discussion
0: well you know i think we love violence and we love gore and we love atmospheric goodness
1: the movie starts with big men doing a violence. So
0: sure. <laughs> it's, it's got
1: executioners. As, right.
0: It's got as much to do with V as like Vampyr had to do with Carmilla. Yeah. But it works in that like same nightmarish way that Vampyr does.
1: The movie works. Absolutely. It does not work as an adaptation. No. Okay. I got confused by what you were saying, so I just wanted to be clear.
0: No, yeah, I just mean like the it works as a movie. It's yeah, it's got that same nightmare vibe.
1: Absolutely, um, and I think that comes from a lot of the aesthetic and mm-hmm. visual intrigue that goes on. Um, but how about I lay things out? Right.
0: Speaking of those big men,
1: the big men. I don't. It just was like, listen, I'm playing Baldur's Gate. There's big men on my brain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> These guys are like. Like these guys these look are like big boys. These guys look like they could be like Mortal Kombat characters. Like they yeah. they're these like ripped executioners wearing the like cowls.
1: Like their biceps are the size of my thigh. Yeah. My thigh is huge. Yeah. Like
0: <laughs> They're all sweaty from the fires.
1: From the fire. My goodness. Okay, I'm focusing. Mhm. I just really enjoy this movie. It's the 17th century. We see that the Inquisition has come to Moldavia. The person we see being um, tried, her name is Asa. She is a witch, and she is going to be burned at the stake. She has been branded with the mark of Satan. And um, she also gets this devil mask, well, mask of Satan from the title, um, nailed onto her face. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see that whole process. Fantastic. Her compatriot... Uh, has also already gone through this and is just basically waiting on the side to be burned at the stake. And this is Yavaditch and their lovers, basically.
0: For the purposes of this movie, witches, Satanists, and vampires, all the same thing.
1: Well, here's the thing, Ben. Witches have always had a relationship with Satan. Sure. So that's fine. Um, And then the idea of witches like luring people and stealing like youth or something, I can see that, you know, being conflated with vampirism.
0: But the movie just like uses the three words interchangeably, I guess is what I mean to say.
1: Yeah. This movie isn't doing anything egregious.
0: No, no. Like it, it makes sense. It's not like super weird, but it's just like when the narrator is like the Inquisition hunted down vampires in the 17th century, you might be like didn't they hunt down witches it's cuz all these words mean the same thing for the purpose of this movie
1: now the person leading the inquisition here is us's brother his name's not important uh and she's like fuck you brother um i vow vengeance on you and your lineage and i curse you with satan's curse that um i will come back and uh, my blood will continue through your generations. You'll never be rid of me. Then she gets the devil mask nailed to her face. And um, she is about to be burned at the stake. But uh, Satan causes a lot of rain to come down to put the fire out. So everyone there kind of gets freaked out and decides, you know what? We'll put Asa into the family crypt. And Yavatich just gets buried.
0: In unconsecrated ground.
1: Yes, that's fair. That's fair. But he is just buried. Two centuries later, we see a Dr. Kruvian and his assistant, Dr. Andre Gorobek, traveling through Moldavia, and they go through a detour that has them happen upon the old witch's crypt, which by now is very decrepit and falling apart. While the two investigate a big-ass bat comes out of nowhere and attacks Kruvian. Um, He, you know, swipes at it and ends up, like, shooting it uh, like a badass. Uh, but as he's, like, swinging his cane around, he ends up breaking um, this crucifix that was on Asa's sarcophagus. Uh, and it also breaks um, a window that was over her face because the idea was if the crucifix is always in view of the witch, she can't move. Now the crucifix is broken, the glass is broken, and so he reaches in to kind of see, you know, what's in her sarcophagus, and he cuts himself on some of the glass. That little bit of blood starts the reanimation process for Asa.
0: Uh, When they, like, see... He, like, takes the mask of Satan off her face because this guy's too curious for his own good. There's this really great image of, like, her face hasn't really, like, aged or decayed but it's got all the holes in it from the nails and like her eyes are gone like you'd expect out of like a skull but like the skin is all there and stuff um and then after like he starts bleeding accidentally onto the skin um when she starts like rejuvenating the movie's got this really cool effect of like her empty eye sockets fill up with blood and then the blood like congeals into new eyeballs
1: yeah, it's gross. It's super <laughs> gross. It's great. As they head outside of the crypt, they meet Katya, who is uh, the princess of the area. She lives at the local castle with uh, her brother, Constantine, and her father, Vida. The crypt is on their ground, so that's why she's around, and she heard the gunshot, so she's investigating. And Andre is completely smitten with her. Um, but they say, yeah, we're just on our way to the inn. We have to go. by. We see in these neat scenes of like that Ben just described, Asa is coming back to life and she has this kind of psychic connection to Yavidich. And so she calls to him like, arise, I'm coming back and I need you too. So he comes out of his grave and has some very good imagery of hands clawing and it's a lot of dirt. They really didn't skimp on the dirt. <laughs> I don't know why I'm like emphasizing that. It was impressive. That night, uh, we are at the castle where Katya lives. And weird things are afoot. Um, very classic weird gothic things like um the family symbol is like a lion griffin thing. And in one of these paint- It's just a griffin. Okay, well it's a griffin. And there's, like, lion imagery throughout the castle. Sure,
0: I guess it's just because, like, what a griffon is is, like, a lion with wings. It just feels like saying it's a lion griffin thing. It's, okay. it's like calling it, like, a horse centaur thing.
1: <laughs> Anyways, in a portrait, the griffon is dead. Uh, and it was alive before, like, alive in the paint, like depicted in the painting as being alive it wasn't <laughs> yeah moving.
0: and now now it's in the painting as dead
1: um so weird things like that very spooky the spooky night kind of culminates for the father vida um because he sees Yavridich come to him in the night and this kind of sparks like panic and like a fever from shock in him so his kids, Konstantin and Katya, they call for a doctor. They basically send a servant of theirs to go down to the inn to get those two doctors that Katya met previously. But Javitych reaches Kruvayan first. Um, he gets Kruvijan into a carriage, steals him away, and takes him to meet Asa, who turns him into basically an undead vampire.
0: Yeah, like a like a vampire spawn kind of idea. Basically,
1: yeah. Um and then takes Kruvian to the castle to oversee Vida. By morning, Vida is dead.
0: Probably worth noting that these like portraits that they have in the castle are of Asa and Yavadich.
1: Yes, so they have these two giant portraits um because of you know their importance to like the family curse
0: i guess it is weird i feel like if you had ancestors who were like witch vampire satanists that you would keep their giant portraits in like your dining room but well, they're
1: clearly like screwed in because
0: <laughs> yeah one of
1: them is hiding a secret passage
0: for sure for sure It, it this is some gothic standard gothic horror stuff right absolutely but katya's got like an obsession a little bit with the Asa portrait because... Um, they
1: look exactly the same.
0: Yeah, like like you'd expect. <laughs> well, I guess maybe not like you'd expect if you didn't know that this world works on gothic horror rules. But if you know you're gothic <laughs> horror, then yeah, like you'd expect.
1: Um, also by morning, Kruvian is also missing. Now, Andre didn't know where he went during the night... He's trying to find him. He learns that he's at the castle, so he heads up there, helps take care of the body. They learn, due to the servant that they sent out from the castle turning up dead, that, like, something's not quite right. They investigate a bit, and a local girl says that, yeah, I saw Kruvian get into a carriage with a guy who looks like that guy in the portrait, which is very suspicious, because everyone knows that that's Javidich. While André is trying to find Kuvian, Kuvian finds André um, and is clearly about to do some violence to him before André turns around with um, a piece of memorabilia that they took from Asa's grave. It's uh, an, an icon. icon of, I believe it's supposed to be St. George. And upon seeing this icon, uh, Kuvian, like freaks out and runs. And André's like, this is all really weird fair andre fair (laughs) so all of this is pretty weird so andre goes to the priest and he's like priest what's going on and the priest is like this is all in line with the family curse with all of this um the girl siding of Yavridich is like yeah that that guy's risen from the grave asa's coming back and your friend your colleague has been turned so He's like, first things first, let's go to where Javidich was buried and see what we can find. They go there and they find Kruvayan buried in the coffin. Um, His skin burns when the crucifix touches him. So the priest is like, Kate, we got to stake him. That's not how you would think. He takes some wood and stakes Kruvayan through the left eye. Mm -hmm. It's gross. I actually think it might be a nail. Well, he takes like he takes it from the lid of the coffin. Yeah, yeah. But it's a really fucking long nail. Yeah, man. You don't want those vampires getting out. they
0: still got out, dude. I know, man.
1: Those nails did nothing.
0: At least not till they were through the eye.
1: <laughs> Given that there's been other deaths in this village, the priest is like, Okay, hey, I'm gonna go to that servant guy who died and like stake him. You head to the castle and deal with Vida until his kids what's up so andre heads to the castle and it's at that point that uh we cut to constantine and their butler who is a very nice guy but i don't remember his name ivan ivan right due to excessive candles um one of the portraits ends up lighting on fire ivan puts it out and this is when they discover that there's a switch to a secret passage behind the fireplace this happens just as Andre arrives, and Constantine and Andre head down the passageway. And they find that it takes them to the side of the castle where Asa and Yavanich have been doing machinations. Um, and they discover Asa nearly fully regenerated. They freak out, and Andre's like, Okay, I'm going to go get the priest. He'll know what to do. Constantine, you go deal with your dad and go protect katya because clearly their plan is to like use katya to fully reinvigorate asa
0: yeah there's some complicated stuff about how she needs to like inhabit katya's body the mechanics of it are a little vague but
1: it it doesn't need to be more specific than that yeah so andre heads out gets to the priest meanwhile constantine goes to head out gets trapped and and Javidic throws him down a pit, basically. Mm-hmm. They struggle, and Konstantin is no more. We see Katya making her way through the house. She comes to her dad because she can't find anyone else, and she's crying. And that's when the dad reawakens. Um, she flips out, and he tries to bite her. Saving the day here is Javidic, um, who basically... It's like no only Asa can have her and throws Vida into a fire yeah and then takes Katya to Asa meanwhile Andre has talked to the priest priest is going to go get a mob together Andre comes back to the castle and he's like people let me in he manages to break in and he sees that no one's around he manages to get down to the crypt while he's on the way we see that Asa is draining Katya's youth and beauty and life away. But Asa can't complete the job because Katya's wearing a crucifix. While on the way, Andre fights with Javadich, who basically gets pulled into the pit by a nearly dead Constantine. So he wasn't quite dead yet, but now he for sure is. He dies in Andre's arms.
0: I do really love that, like, Andre's method of getting into the castle is, like, jumping through a window and like doing like a three point like superhero landing and shit like yeah like this is no jonathan harker you know what i mean (laughs) this is no david manners specifically yeah yeah,
1: specifically i mean all harkers have struggled (laughs) andre continues and by the time he makes it to the crypt also has switched places um katya is laying on the crypt and Asa is standing and she tries to play it to Andre that like, yeah, I'm Katya. That's Asa and you should kill her because I'm in danger. And he's about to stake her into the eye when he realizes that the woman laying on the crypt has the crucifix on and he kind of puts two and two together and he's like, this isn't Asa. You're Asa. As he grabs at her, um, we get a little bit of a jump scare sort of thing with a jump gore moment, I guess, um, because even though her youth has returned from like the neck up, underneath her cloak, she still is like all just rib cage and rotting flesh. And before Andre can really battle it out with Asa, the priest with his mob arrives and they take care of Asa. Um, they grab her, they put her onto a stake, and they burn her. Katya seems to be completely dead, um, so there's no more hope. And as Asa burns, Katya comes back to life. And so Katya and Andre can be together, knowing that the curse of the family is broken. The end. So like in true gothic fashion, little convoluted, Mm -hmm. lots going on, but it's actually fairly straightforward.
0: Yeah, I think like the story's a little rough, but it's almost helped by the way that it's a little basic. Yeah. Like as vampire stories go, like... This feels very similar to the things we've seen attempted in movies like The Vampire and the Ballerina or um, even like El Vampiro with this kind of like expansion of vampire mythos into like a brother sister Mm -hmm. dynamic and like a male and a female and working it into like the gothic themes of like family secrets and, and bad things deep in your family.
1: Yeah, it's gothic in every way, from the melodrama, the heaving bosoms, hmm. the implied incest, the duplicate people. It 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 works so well together.
0: Yeah. You know, there are inconsistencies um, and there are things that don't line up, but it's all pretty comprehensible, all things considered. I think because the story follows some like...
1: Pretty basic things. Yeah. Um, because it is focused on enveloping you Mm -hmm. in the story to the point where like the plot holes are patched up enough that like they didn't distract me
0: what inconsistencies exist are not much worse than what you'd get in like a typical horror film of this type in my opinion like what Asa's powers are and like what exactly she needs to revive and how the old age thing works because it doesn't really make sense. Like, they talk a lot about how she's draining Katya's youth, but, like, we only see Asa look old becoming young again in the shots where she's doing the draining, and we only see Katya look young becoming old again in the shots where the draining's happening, and then outside of that, like, they both look young and the same kind of regardless, you know, and it's like, well, wait a minute. If, like, she can't move or get around or do anything until she can like drain Asa. Like how does she have the power to revive Yavaditch? And and there's these kinds of like questions, but like a lot of horror movies of this vintage are really vague and nonsensical about like how the magic powers work. So it didn't really bother me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, like it didn't distract me the play by play of how the story goes there's no major holes there, yeah that make you go like, well wait, what happened to the priest?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like,
1: wait so Constantine just fell in a hole like you see how those characters actually come into the plot. like there's no character that you're like, why are you here? Everyone feels like they have a, a role to play.
0: It's really interesting to like read about some of the changes that were made to the story because it gives you a lot of appreciation for Sandre. And his editing job and how he smoothed some of these things over. Yeah. Like at one point, I guess there was a whole subplot where Yavadich kidnapped Katya earlier in the film than he does currently. Okay. Like from her bedroom. And then Asa like impersonated Katya for like a stretch of the film. And like when Katya is kind of like talking to, andre in that one scene where they're kind of like outside and she's like oh i need you to come to the castle and stuff that was asa impersonating katya originally or like that's why there's the stuff of like why yavaditch is like hanging around katya's room mysteriously or like various different things like that it's why like katya in one scene is talking to the village girl and is like no it can't possibly have been you know a vampire or whatever but like that's all smoothed over. You don't really notice these things. It's not like other movies I've seen get drastically re-edited where you can kind of feel how it doesn't make sense anymore.
1: Yeah. This feels right. Yeah. And I think a big part of that is the aesthetic, like everything visually is mm-hmm. so well integrated with itself, with, the characters with the themes, like everything is so well done. The shadows, the camera movement, the sets, the mise en scène,
0: yeah, the costumes, music, uh, great gore effects, yes. Um, the hammering of the mask, the burning of the prince, the nail through the eye, Asa's eyes regrowing, her undead rib cage. These are all things that like stand out, but there's even more gore stuff beyond that. Those are just the ones that like yeah. come to mind immediately.
1: The choices of how they handled action Mm. shows that they have, they is in, I guess, Bava himself, but shows that they have a really good understanding of atmosphere and tension. Mm. And I'll demonstrate this in an example. When Kruvayan arrives to the crypt the second time when he's been brought here by Yavadich, he sees the sarcophagus whole. And as he's like, Realizing he's trapped, the sarcophagus begins to shake and shake harder and it's like rocking back and forth and then it stops and he's like, what happened? And it's not to set up a jump scare, it's just to help build tension of like, what is happening? I've been brought here, I thought I was going to go help this guy. And then suddenly the sarcophagus bursts and it's a woman there. That sequence and control of the action was just perfect. I remember turning to you and being like, yeah, like, (laughs) I don't know. They just handled it so well in a way that felt, yes, you're continuing to handle the tension in even these small moments.
0: One thing I really noticed too was like, there are certain things here where it's like, well, this connects to future Italian horror films in various ways. Um, A big thing is like Javadich's, for a few different sequences, like when he's stalking Katya or when he kills Yvonne, just kind of appears as like a pair of black gloves holding murder weapons that are like wandering about. Even though there's no like real reason to keep it a secret who's doing the murders. Like we, we know it's Yavaditch, but this is like a visual thing that sort of comes from, I think we first saw it in Spiral Staircase, but we noted even then that like, this is how giallo works, mm-hmm. which is not yet a thing as a film genre in Italy yet. It's a like pulp literature uh genre, but like it will be soon and that's like a major visual signifier is the murderer wearing the black gloves. Um or the other thing is like Italian horror movies love eye trauma. Clearly. And that like starts right here.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, man. The gore is really good. It's very effective. And one thing that I wanted to bring up mm. that, is, again, points to Bava knowing what he's doing uh-huh. and being a step above some of the other B horror movies that we've seen through the 50s. In those B horror movies, we'll sometimes get the same kind of shot of, like, oh, spooky crypt and the camera will move up towards maybe like the secret passageway or to the crypt itself and over the sarcophagus and will hold on the shot of the monster. Um, In the B horror movies, they tend to do that and repeat it as a way of padding Mm. and trying to build tension possibly of Uh like the monsters coming, the monsters reanimating, getting rejuvenated, um, getting juiced up. Mario Bava repeats those kinds of shots sometimes they're a little different based on camera movement um but it's the same setup of like you know forward facing and we're just moving towards something or moving down towards something in the case of when we're seeing Asa regenerate, we're moving towards the sarcophagus in the sim- in a similar way and the close-up on her is always it's from the same shot but it is actually showing marked progress Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he knows what he's doing with the special effects like we see just like the skin and the holes and the the eye holes and like scorpions or something on her face then later same thing except now there's like blood boiling in her eyes and there's maggots around and then the next time i think is when we see like the eyes sort of form like everything really feels like a progression rather than a means of padding time
0: in the part before she um you know before kruvayan sees her mm-hmm. when she's still kind of cooking um <laughs> the like look of her eyes where they're these like blank white eyes and the kind of like sunken in sockets i guess really made me think of like how a lot of horror monsters in the future look but like the imagery that really came to mind to me was like the deadites in the evil dead movies when sure. like, people get possessed right but yeah like really effective stuff what did you think of like the various gore effects like not just as like holy crap we've not seen that in a movie before but like just like as special effects
1: oh yeah very well done yeah um i think the way that they handled even when yavadich takes off his own satan mask mm. and there's like Almost like a spider web, yes, pulling from his between the face and the mask like on the scale of what they do in this movie, that is fairly minor and they pull it off seamlessly
0: for sure for sure yeah, it's really good. I really enjoy how high the body count is in this movie.
1: yeah, like, practically everyone
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah like the surviving characters are like the priest and Katya and Andre, right but like Kurvan dies. Yavaditch dies, Ivan dies, Boris dies, Asa dies, like, a lot of people die in this movie, which is
1: cool. Yeah, I thought it was neat how, so the girl who sees the doctor get into the carriage, she's scared to go out at night to go milk this cow. And as she's making her way to the cow, you know, it's a bit of a horror movie thing of like, we're following her through the foliage and stuff. And I'm like, oh, she, she's going to get caught by Yavadich, but she doesn't. It's like a bait and switch. I I really enjoyed that because it wasn't just like a bait and switch of making you feel like you've been played. Right. It felt like, uh, you don't know what's going, like, you don't know what the plan is. Well, because
0: when she doesn't get got and it's Javadich comes for Kurovan instead to take him in the carriage, Sonia continues to serve a role in the story because she's the one who sees it and then reports that later, which helps Andre know like where to go and so on and so forth, rather than just, oh yeah, she wasn't attacked. And then that's the end of her involvement in the story. Right. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't feel like we were led down a false path that just padded out time for no reason. Like it stays relevant, right? That's one of the things I really like about the early parts of this movie is that, like, all of the things stay relevant. It's one of the things that's, like, really impressive about the editing in the movie, knowing how kind of fractured the movie's story was, that there aren't any, like, clues that are, like, set up... And then not used. There's nothing yeah. where it's like the way to defeat the witches is the sacred amulet of Saint George, and then no one ever gets the sacred amulet or something like that. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. To the point of the critics, mm-hmm. uh, in like the UK, I think you said, when this was released in like the later sixties, um, the dubbing is a negative part of the movie. You get into it, um, but it is a little like
0: For me, it felt a lot like Um, a little bit like recognizable to how some of the dubbing in like spaghetti Westerns feels Um, also a little bit how like the dubbing in, you know, old Godzilla movies feels or at least the ones that were dubbed well. But the other thing that was kind of like weird about it was because the actors on set were speaking English, it doesn't have the, like it doesn't match the lips movement it's just that, like, if you are a native English speaker and you know, like, oh, if you say that word with this much force, it'll make a different mouth shape
1: than yeah. with that
0: much force. So, like, the lips mostly match what people are saying, but at sometimes you get the feeling that, like... The expression isn't right. Like, Barbara Steele on set was not saying things as emphatically as, like, the dubbing ends up being. It makes it a little hard to judge the performances in the movie i think everyone is fine
1: honestly i really like the acting and the reacting that they do Mm -hmm. that they would have been directed to do on set
0: yeah it's it's a little tough because like sometimes people seem a little over the top and sometimes seem a little bit like not enough not enough yeah like sometimes people don't react as strongly as you would think to something. And other times they're like way over. Um, but for the most part, like there's nothing super bad here. Um, I'm curious what you thought of like Barbara Steele in this movie, in her like dual role.
1: Um, I really liked it. I think she really visually fit the part. Mm. Yeah, I think she was good. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was just curious because like this movie turned her into a big star And it's like, you know, I was trying to figure out like.
1: Listen, I can see why it turned her into a star with the way that she has many heaving bosoms. (laughs) Sure.
0: Yeah. I was like, is this just because she's really hot or like, what's the deal here? Um, She's wearing a wig the whole movie
1: yeah you can kind of tell it's a wig
0: yeah um, but
1: also we're entering like i don't think it's quite the style yet but we are entering the 60s where that big poofy hair is kind of going to be the style so i yeah, kind of let sure. it slide
0: yeah for sure um yeah i i i liked her i think i like her better as asa than as katya
1: because she's able to be more inv- emphatic yeah in her performance rather than like a like scared person yeah
0: which then like helps her fit in better with the rest of the cast i think
1: yeah which i don't think is necessarily tied to acting ability yeah but more acting choice
0: sure you said you really liked the music
1: oh music was so good ben just atmospheric it underlined uh the right things when it wasn't Oh, oh, Paradox, yeah. you like the music too? When the music wasn't there, it felt purposeful. It mm. didn't feel like something was missing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it balanced the line of having presence, but not taking away. Because with Gothic, there's so much visuals going on that if it's like too bombastic of music, it can, like, there's too much, right? It, everything needs to kind of be of a piece. And I really feel like the music that they did put together really fit that.
0: Sure. Um, what did you think of like Katya's theme, the kind of romantic piano theme?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, gothic and mellow drama, Fuck yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is a really fun, cool movie. Um, it does what a lot of people in Europe have been trying to do lately, uh, which is rip off the Hammer Dracula movies. Um, but it does it much better than I think anyone else Absolutely. has done it up to this
1: point. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, like this is, this feels very similar to El Vampiro or uh, La Monte, uh del Vampiro or uh, even um, Lady Vampire uh, in some ways. But like, is... For- it feels like someone trying to rip off Hammer Dracula who already was a fan of horror.
1: Here's the thing, I hmm. think. It's not ripping off, it's building. Sure. Yeah, for sure.
0: So, do you want to move on to ranking? Do you have anything else to say about uh, La Masquera del Demonio?
1: I do have one more thing to oh, say. Oh, for sure. The only thing in the gothic genre this movie doesn't manage to do Mm. is that psychological aspect yes the curse is real Mm -hmm. it's not symbolic for corruption of the lineage like it's literally you've been cursed by a witch yeah who happened to be your sister
0: i do really like that bava kind of like builds the story out more beyond the events of the movie by having like there's a scene where like prince vida talks about like you know, this is not the first time the curse is visited. Like a hundred years ago, there was this whole thing with like this princess named Masha who looked exactly like Asa and and an earthquake that like killed her and blah, 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 blah. And I thought that was really like just neat because it, I don't know, it it made the history feel better, more yeah. fleshed out. It didn't make you ask like, well, why is it now that she's returning? It's like, no, no, no. Like this has happened before, right? This
1: just happens to be the anniversary.
0: Yeah. Um, but I agree with you on the psychological thing. I think part of the problem here is they could have done something because of the connection between Asa and Katya. There's almost kind of like an implied psychic link that like is bothering Katya. Like she's really disturbed by that one painting, right? And stuff like that. And they could have delved into that more. And I think if Katya as a character had like more internality, that could have worked, but she doesn't because she's kind of just a sexy lamp a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think that holds the movie back for sure. I, I think the movie does gothic really, really well. But if it wants to be fully, like, diving in 12 feet deep, I guess I should say 6 feet deep into the genre, it needs to have that aspect to it. And I think, like, I don't know if they would have been able to do a psychological aspect and have it make sense given the production of the movie Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were like writing pages the night before um because a psychological aspect needs to have like it's like when you're writing a mystery thriller like you need to build it forward and then build it backwards
0: well and like whatever theming this movie has like whatever themes you can pull out as a analyst i think have more to do with like if you look at bava's work as a whole you can go oh some common themes he goes back to or this or if you're looking at like that writer um ennio did concini um you can say oh a lot of his movies have these elements in the story but like as it stands the plot in black sunday is very like face value yeah it's like this movie just is about what it's about and it doesn't really have anything like Deeper to say or suggest, like for all its use of like religious iconography and inquisition imagery, um, it doesn't really have anything to say about the church. It's just here as kind of like a plot element. And same with basically everything else in this movie, whether it's like the collapse of the nobility or the rise of like medical science, like these things are all just here as plot elements because they're always plot elements in vampire stories up till now like there's a lot of like things that are in this movie because they are part of the genre not to say that like they feel vestigial though like the movie uses all of these things it just doesn't have really anything new to say about them
1: yeah yeah I think you kind of explained it perfectly but just to put like the cherry on top like I think this movie is doing really really well even with it just being face value I'm just saying that like if you're looking for something to write a thesis about, it won't be the themes of this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, you'll need to kind of, like, dig deep on this one. You'll need to pull some stuff out of your ass if, like, you want to, like, <laughs> go into, like, the theming of this movie.
1: But with that, let's move on to ranking.
0: So, Sarah, I have kind of a big range. It's, like, 16 movies wide. Uh, what about you?
1: Uh, I guess mine's, like, 10 or 12.
0: Okay, Let's see if our ranges are similar. Kind of, yeah. Anywhere near each other. You go ahead. So the first movie I looked for to see where it was on the list was La Monte del Vampiro. Um, I don't know why. It just felt like similar to this. I guess like earlier this same year, um, also Italian, I believe, you know, similar kind of crumbling castles and vampires and lady vampires and family lore and, and things like this. Um, That's at number 64 on our list and Brides of Dracula, another big vampire movie from this year is right above that at 63. And I kind of felt like, well, but Kaltiki's at 49. And this is definitely better than Kaltiki. So let's start looking up from there, right? I kept looking up a little bit until I reached Nosferatu at 42. And right below Nosferatu is Kuruta Ichipeji. And I was like, is this better than Nosferatu? And I kind of hemmed and hawed about it and I thought, maybe, maybe not. So I made my floor 44. I think this is definitely better than, like, I Bury the Living or Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I think above this point, you can have some debate. Then I looked for, like, my ceiling, um, you know, what this was definitely not better than. And, you know passed by some really good movies here like Ferman Maria and Night of the Demon, House on Haunted Hill. But at number 27, we have the original Bela Lugosi Dracula, which, you know, not the best vampire movie ever made, but one that I think really wields its atmosphere and its tension in a really effective way. Dracula, Todd Browning's Dracula is almost like a movie whose power relies on suggestion like what's happening when you're not looking yeah um and mario bava's film here is very much like no 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 no. you're gonna see her get branded you're gonna see the nail go through the eye you're gonna see everything and those are two different approaches to horror but then like above dracula where you have like i married a monster from outer space and you have bride of frankenstein and you have body snatcher and it just felt like above this point like the movies have more to say than just being scary so i think like i think this film earns a lot of points for how how far it goes for how it's willing to just be like no no no, no, we're not going to cut away from the violence we're just going to show you the violence
1: we're going to uh, do a close-up on the violence right <laughs>
0: Um, I think that earns it a lot of points, but I don't know how high it can get given that it's not really about anything. So my range ended up being 28 to 44.
1: Interesting. Okay. I was looking above where you are. Okay. I started looking at Horror of Dracula Mm, because you were like, you know, this is ripping it off or at least building upon. I think because of the way that Horror of Dracula has like a lot more... Action, but still manages to handle the gothic it handles gore um and it has something to say i started looking below horror of dracula
0: i think also that like horror of dracula wins a lot from just having christopher lee and peter cushing in it
1: absolutely like to anchor those characters then i came to the fall of the house of usher that sure. we just watched um, it's ranked at number 11 and i felt like this was a good place to kind of stake my ceiling because fall of the house of usher has the gothic it has the symbolism it has the psychological elements to it it has what an amazing use of color and everything and it, it's doing gothic but with color um in a way that bava is like painting with shadows mm-hmm. um and i felt like especially because it's about something but that uh, surrealist dream sequence in particular that places Fall of the House of Usher as my ceiling. I knew it was going to go below this. So I started kind of working my way down uh, to figure out where my floor would be. My eyes came to Jigoku because that's what I first thought of when you said that uh, Black Sunday has gore we've never seen before. And I was mm. like, we saw someone get flayed in Jigoku. I don't know if you can say that about Black Sunday. Um, I think it pushes the limit a bit, especially with eye stuff. Um, and I think there's something to be said about the way that it uh proliferated faster and perhaps more extensively than Jigoku. But Jigoku is about something, it has that psychological element. In fact, that's like the core of it. Sure. So I continued looking down and my eyes came to La Diabolique at twenty-three. Yeah. We debated how much of a thriller versus horror it was. We came down on the side of horror. But part of the reason why we had that debate is because the, the story is like very down to earth. It's not a witch put a curse on your family. Right. But it pulls back the punch at the end. Like, mm-hmm. yes, she dies. But then it's like, oh, I'm a detective and I'm here to solve the case. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of a a little bit of a letdown because it, of that. it's
0: got like a really rushed ending.
1: Yeah, whereas the Mask of Satan, Black Sunday, I didn't feel like it was worried about pulling those punches or anything like that. So I made Diabolique my floor, which makes my range 11 to 23.
0: Okay. Um, I'm willing to kind of come up into your range, but not too high up into your range. So I think that this could potentially be better than like Quatermass Experiment. Body Snatcher is, like, really effective.
1: How much of that effectiveness is just Karloff? I think there's more to it than just Karloff, but Karloff pulls his weight in that.
0: Oh, for sure, but, like...
1: It has, like, that implied history between the characters.
0: It's got the... To me, it's got that, like, really, really good ghost story kind of ending. That's true. Right? Where he's, like, dead in the carriage with him and stuff. Um,
1: At the end of the day, though, it is just, like, one guy... Being a dick to a family.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is just a witch being a dick to a family. No, but like <laughs> so I don't think I don't think this should go any higher than um the black cat at 16.
1: Mm-hmm. That's um, very fair because the black cat is about so much. Yes.
0: <laughs> um and I don't even really think this should go higher than Isle of the Dead.
1: Yeah, that too. Um I was thinking about the way that it handles the the tension and you're stuck in just this one spot and the idea of the plague going on behind and the scream of the woman in the coffin. Like, there the, is no moment in this movie that gave me chills like that. Yeah, the
0: ghost in Isle of the Dead gets me like yeah. really hard. The one who just turns out to be like the woman walking around, you know, after getting buried alive. Um, but it really gets me. This movie's, it's more like, fun like you like i don't know like if you're into horror movies like all the stuff here it doesn't so much like scare me as make me go like oh yeah (laughs) like this is so cool so what about above son of frankenstein but below isle of the dead at number 20
1: yeah i was really torn about this because son of frankenstein is the return of horror and it shows stuff that like was shocking for that time
0: it's got the psychological element with like Basil Rathbone's, like, I don't want to be my father, but I am my father, like, kind of stuff going on, and, like, Igor's, like, quest for revenge and all that kind of stuff. It is the movie that turned the monster into a side character in his own series. Yeah. It's got really good, like, expressionist sets and cinematography, but, like, this movie has... Really good cinematography and lighting and and gothic atmosphere. So
1: this is this is really hard, Ben. It's only gonna get harder. Yeah, I know. The more we do the show, oh, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we doing this to ourselves? Are we like masochists? Um, sure. Let's go with this. Um, yeah. honestly, I'm surprised you let me go above the body snatcher. So
0: cool. Entering the list at the new number twenty is. La Masquera del Demonio, a.k.a. The Mask of Satan, a.k.a. Black Sunday, directed by Mario Bava from 1960.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr. Or you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, uh, help us grow our audience, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting app that you use, um, especially on Apple Podcasts like The reviews and the ratings really really help for visibility Um, or alternatively you could just spread the word about the show yourself whether that's on social media or in person or over the phone or through carrier pigeon whatever methodology (laughs) you want to use it really helps us out if you enjoy what we do here consider becoming a patron Uh, you can become a patron of the night as little as a dollar a month by heading on over to patreon.com slash scream scene patrons at the five and ten dollar levels get access to regular bonus content and of course October is the super spooky special time where we like to do like special episodes special content in the past we've had music albums we've had audio books we've had um, special episodes on like related topics uh we've had short fiction we've done a lot of different things over the years uh the plan for this year is we're going to do uh a horror tabletop role-playing game actual play episode where sarah and i are going to play the game dread Mm -hmm. um which should be really interesting to
1: do and all through October, bonus audio is coming from our horror-adjacent episodes. Um, this week, nearly 20 minutes from our episode on M.
0: Wow. Uh, that's a lot of cool content. And if you want to check it out, as well as the entire backlog of cool stuff that we've done, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast.
1: So, Ben, what are we watching next week?
0: Well, Sarah, next week we're sticking around in Italy. Uh, for a film I've never seen called Sedok Lair de Satan or Sedok the Heir of Satan. Okay. Or as it's better known by its American title, Atom Age Vampire.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: I know a little bit about what it's about. It's Uh, about an
1: Atom Age Vampire, Ben. Yeah,
0: there's like radiation related stuff here.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, it might be really interesting and cool and good but like it might also be terrible the vampire's backstory involves hiroshima so okay we'll see how that goes and it's italy yeah
1: okay i would have suspected japan nope you know okay well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye